Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. John Bradley was about 22 years old when he got the part that changed his life. He'd just graduated from theater school in Manchester, England. He'd done some theater work, but never anything on camera. He got called in for an audition, literally his first audition ever, and he knew it was a big deal. It was a new HBO show called Game of Thrones. And what happened? Well, he got the part. For eight years, he played Samwell Tarly, Jon Snow's best buddy. In the beginning, it's clear that Sam isn't cut out for the world of Game of Thrones. He's not a natural warrior. He's big and kind of soft. He's smart, but not especially cunning. He's nice, but maybe a little goofy. And on any other show, you can pretty much guess his character's trajectory. Maybe he stays a bumbling comic sidekick, or maybe he gets killed off tragically, or maybe he transforms and finds the warrior inside him and learns to use an axe or whatever. On Game of Thrones, none of that happens. The things Samwell was bullied for, his kindness, his empathy, his bookishness, they turn out to be assets, not liabilities. Samwell became one of the show's most beloved characters, and improbably one of the few who made it to the series finale alive. And I mean, I'm sorry that I spoiled that, but the show ended two years ago. Get your act together. I talked with John in 2019, right as all of that was happening. What's he been up to since then? Working! He's starring in the brand new blockbuster disaster flick Moonfall, alongside Patrick Wilson and Halle Berry. In Moonfall, the moon literally falls towards the Earth, which is a pretty straightforward premise. Anyway, let's kick off my conversation with John with a clip from Game of Thrones. This comes from the very end of the show's bloody and harrowing run. All the great houses in the land are meeting to figure out the future of Westeros, and finally, at long last, Sam has earned the respect of his peers. Or something close to it, at least. We represent all the great houses, but whomever we choose, they won't just rule over lords and ladies. Maybe the decision about what's best for everyone should be left to, well, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. I'll ask my horse. Uh, John John Bradley, welcome to Bullseye. It's really nice to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. What an extraordinary achievement to be a part of, and congratulations on uh, bringing it home. Thank you. Yeah, it feels very strange to be one of the kind of very few people who've been in every single season of this show. There's only a handful of us left, and to to have been in every single one of the eight seasons, it's a rare and and uh, very great privilege. Your ticket is punched for life now, John. I, I have a friend <laughs> I have a friend whose father-in-law was on Star Trek. Oh yeah. And the original Star Trek. And so since 1965 or 1968 or whenever it was that Star Trek ran, he and the other main cast members of Star Trek have just had their lives conjoined. It's like those like your six best high school girlfriends that you 
uh, every five years when somebody turns 30, you all go on a vacation together. Um, <laughs> well, the fact, the, the fact that you thought I had six girlfriends in high school means that, <laughs> that you don't really know me that well at all. You, over, I, <laughs> over the course of this interview, you're going to know just what an erroneous <laughs> assumption that is on your part. Well, I, know I may be describing a hypothetical group of, of young ladies. Uh, I think it would be pretty weird, even if you did have six girlfriends in high school, if you went on vacation with them. I'd be lucky to even get six hypothetical girlfriends in high school, believe me. <laughs> But there, there is something remarkable about having been through this crazy crucible of, you know, f- flying to Iceland and Croatia and flying to Los Angeles to do with people that, you know, your professional life and probably personal life will be tied to forever. And here you are, you're like 30-ish and you, you know, you were in college when this started. Yeah, and I think that that's one that's that's why it makes it such a unique experience for for people like me and people like Kit and Emilia and Maisie and Sophie and Isaac because we don't know what it's really like to be professional actors and not be in this show. I I, I think that's one of the reasons why it coming to an end is such a weird experience for us because. If you take people like Charles Dance or Dame Diana Rigg or people like that, they had these amazing careers before Game of Thrones and then they were in Game of Thrones and then they have, they'll have they have an amazing career after it. But with us, it's all we know. And coming out the other side of it, it just feels like such a, a kind of stark, if you'll pardon the pun, such a kind of stark difference between being in it for all those years and then suddenly being not in it. We. The last time I wasn't in Game of Thrones, yeah, as you say, I was in college and it was my entire 20s, which is, which is a, a formative period in anybody's life. But to have your 20s associated with this amazing experience and these amazing people and the friends that you've made that will be your friends for life, but to suddenly be without it, it feels like a real separation's happened and it almost feels like you're kind of starting again. It feels like you slipped into some kind of wormhole of the show and now you've come out of it and you have to get used to what life is like without it again. And that's going to be really weird. Has it already been weird? Do you know what? It, it, it's been weird and it's, and it's, it's been weird in ways that come as a complete surprise. Now, for example, just before where we started this, when I was on my way to the, the, the studio to record this, I had a look at your twitter feed and uh, and it said you know if you've got any questions for for john who played samuel tarley on game of thrones and moments like that where you think oh my god i played him it's already in the past tense that that's one of the weird things for, for kind of eight years i've been the man who plays samuel tarley and then since sunday the tense has completely changed and i'm suddenly the man who played him and it's in the past and you can only look back on it as something that's in the past tense and isn't of this moment. It's consigned to history now. And and you can think about it in big kind of big all-consuming, big kind of cosmic ways, if you like, when you when you talk about how, how time is passing and and the, over the course of a lifetime and transitions that happen in your life. But sometimes it's little tiny things like that and little tiny quirks of language that you're really just not used to that can really bring it on home. And and yeah, I, I think that we're going to be having to get used to that for a while. But it's only it's only kind of three or four days since it's been over. It's been over for, for, for us 
as a kind of everyday experience for over a year now. I wrapped in almost to the day in a year ago in 2018, the middle of May. That was just one stage in a very, very long goodbye. And I've been trying to defer feeling the emotion of this goodbye because I thought, well, I've wrapped on it, but we, we've not been on the air yet. So I don't really have to think about it being over until we've been on the air. And then even up to last week when I was thinking, well, okay, we've shown five episodes of the final season, but I'm not going to think about it being over just yet because we still have one episode to go. It's only when that episode's been on that I really have to confront the idea that this thing is finished. And that was Sunday night slash Monday. And it's just been a very, very weird few days. But you just hope that in your career and in your life, you just do things that bring you the same level of fulfillment and you forge, you know, the same kind of intense friendships and you and you become part of other kind of family units that match it in terms of the affection that you have for each other and the professional respect you have for each other. But that's all in the future. I don't really have any of that yet. All I'm left with now is memories of a, of a really wonderful and special time. And of course, the, the friendships that I made with Kit Harrington and Hannah Murray and Emilia Clark and all of, all of these people that have become such an important part of a very formative time of my life. I'm going to have them going forward, but the reason for us all to be friends and the structure that brought us all together, that's kind of gone. And and, and that's, that's going to take a bit of adjusting to. But I, I think that the people were always what I was going to miss the most. And as long as you miss the people, you're kind of happy because you're in charge of how, how big a part they play in your life going forward. But yeah, the show, that's... That's a, a piece of not only our history, but a piece of kind of entertainment history. And it's only ever going to be looked back on from now on, which is very odd. As I was watching the show's finale and knowing that I was going to be interviewing you in a few days, I imagined you like 20 minutes after the show ended texting maybe Jim Broadbent a text <laughs> yeah. that says like, what is being an actor? <laughs> Yeah, ex- completely. It, that's that's almost how you feel. You want some kind of guidance from somebody that it's actually going to be okay. And I ended up watching the the final episode in a screening room in London with uh, Amelia Clark and some of her friends and Jacob Anderson, who plays Grey Worm. I hadn't planned on watching it with anybody. I planned on watching it with my girlfriend, but in terms of getting together with people from the show, I didn't think that was going to happen. And that was organized at the very last minute. And I think it was a really good way to do it in the end, not just because we were watching it on a a big screen and with other people, which I think is an unbeatable way to watch a piece of entertainment, but also because there were people there who know how I'm feeling especially Amelia because Amelia's been on it ever since season one the same way I have and and she's probably going through a lot of those feelings that I'm feeling about saying goodbye to it so just to have her there we didn't talk about it we we, we didn't dissect it afterwards and have a heart to heart about it we just we just kind of knew implicitly that we, we were both feeling the same way and that was a great that was a great kind of support network to have at that moment in time because nobody really understands the same unless they unless they've had something like that unless they've had a very intensive working relationship with people like that even though myself and Amelia only worked together technically in the final season somebody who's gone on that journey with you and knows what it's like 
to experience that kind of thing, to have them nearby at that very pivotal moment in your life. That was a perfect way of doing it, I think. But yeah, Jim, yeah, Jim. It turns out that Jim, of course, Jim Broadbent was only in it for a one season, but it turns out he he wrote the whole thing. He he right. he, he he was responsible for writing that whole book. So people think, oh, within Jim the Broadbent, within the context of the of the fictional narrative. Oh yeah, within within the context of the logic of the show, Jim wrote the whole thing, and, and that's such an interesting point. People people can say all they want. Oh, Jim Broadbent played a small part in season seven of Game of Thrones, but you think, no, he didn't. Jim's actually probably the most important character in it, and it's no less than he deserves. Yeah, I mean, I'd be like, uh, hey, who wrote this? How about that guy from Topsy Turvy? That guy's yeah, great. Yeah, how about the guy from Topsy Turvy? <laughs> that guy's a genius. <laughs> yeah, if, there, if there's anybody you trust to write this whole thing, it's Jim Broadbent, <laughs> even if I did come up with the title, or Sam <laughs> came up with the title. Do you remember what the character breakdown was when you went to the audition to play Sam? I remember it being, I remember which scene it was, the scene I, I had to audition with was the scene all the way back in season one in Sam's first episode where Sam has to explain to John what he's doing at Castle Black and you get some kind of insight into Sam's childhood and how damaged he is and how, what an abusive upbringing he had at the hands of his father. And the character breakdown just said Sam is overweight, shy, highly intelligent and nervous. And so... That breakdown, as kind of as sparse as it is, that character breakdown and those adjectives with this speech, and you suddenly start to be able to make connections between the two. You start to think, oh, he's nervous, but that's only because he's had this abusive upbringing, and he's highly intelligent, and maybe that that was part of it as well. And he's overweight, and maybe that was a that that's a, a, a symptom and a a byproduct of this abusive childhood as well. And, and when you just have these two pieces of paper, separate pieces of paper, really, and hold them side by side, you start to be able to intermingle this information and start to work out a lot of his motives and a lot of his DNA and a lot of his character makeup and a lot, a lot of the reasons for him being as he is. And that's the thing about great writing, I think. Great writing, as 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 that that monologue was all the way back in season one. You don't need an awful lot of information to be able to figure a character out as an actor. It's almost like a kind of musical score, even though I don't read music. All the clues are there if you think about it properly and if you commit enough mental energy to it. You should be able to figure out all of these notes and figure out how to play it and figure out the clues for for what's hiding behind these words and what's hiding behind these the, the these motivations that this character is displaying so yeah that was it yeah overweight highly intelligent shy and nervous combined with that speech it's just all you need to know about samuel tarley old well especially all you need to know about samuel tarley when we first meet him the journey that he goes on maybe some of those well some of those scars definitely heal and he does develop and he does you know draw a veil over some of those quite apparent character traits that character traits that he exhibits early on but when you first meet him that speech and that description is kind of all you need to know about about where he is uh, psychologically emotionally and spiritually at that point more with john bradley when we come back from a quick break in just a bit bullseye fans on twitter also have questions for him and i promise they are nice questions it's bullseye 
for MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We are replaying my 2019 conversation with actor John Bradley. John played Samuel Tarley on Game of Thrones, and he stars in the brand new disaster movie, Moonfall, which is out now. You talked a little bit on the Conan show about a speech that uh, Conan saw you give at one of the, it was either a rap party or a premiere party for one of the seasons of the show. One of the things that you talked about was the like remarkable feeling that you had that, you know, having spent your whole life as an overweight kid and, you know, in an overweight adolescent and young adult into your early twenties, that's a burden that you have to, that you have to deal with socially. And to have that be the thing that someone wanted from you. Yeah, exactly. And how remarkable of a, of a circumstantial change in your life that was. Yeah, it's just it's just that feeling that you can't quite escape if you're uh, a kind of overweight child or an overweight young person that this is going to really hold me back, actually. And this is going to be something that's going to be an obstacle and people aren't going to be interested in me because of it, especially if you want to be an actor because, you know, the the, the, the roles that are kind of available for, for an, an overweight young person there's so few and far between, especially the good roles that you just think, well, I've got, I've got no chance. And to find that while I was thinking all that about myself and while I did used to lie awake in bed sometimes thinking, God, I just wish that things were different and I wish I could wake up and just not have this weight to deal with all the time. I was thinking that David and Dan and the producers of the show were in Los Angeles and they were looking for exactly me. They were looking for a person who was not only overweight, but also was, you know, carrying a lot of emotional baggage around as a result of that weight and was had had low self-esteem issues because of it and and you know found it hard to engage with the world because of it and all all this these ingredients that were such a part of my makeup at the time and such a part of Sam's makeup uh they they kind of fed into each other at a, at a really kind of magical moment and and if I'd have known that they were looking for me while I was thinking those things about myself or if somebody would have told me that they were looking for me I never would have believed it because I just thought oh life doesn't really work like that but they were they were looking for exactly me and 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 I was available and I was ready and willing to use all of those things about myself to do a, a a good job for them and it's not only that they would put up with my what I you know deemed to be shortcomings and 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 they would accept them and they would work around them they they saw them as virtues they saw them as qualities that they were looking for and I wouldn't have been in the running for this wonderful part with so much potential to it and so much life to it if I wasn't going through these things in my personal life and you know I, I, I've said that at Conan and you know you shouldn't kind of read YouTube comments if you can possibly help it and you can you shouldn't read Twitter comments but sometimes it's hard to resist that really and you and you see people who say oh well if if you were that upset about it just have a salad and go for a run and and you know you you don't have to be like that you had the power to change it if you were that unhappy about it but that's probably a lot of thin people talking and a lot of the time 
it's not just about greed and it's not just about not wanting to go for a run or, you know, preferring cake to salad. It's not just about that. You can't necessarily make these perfectly rational, informed decisions about that because because overeating and the emotional crutch that comes with overeating is just a symptom of some kind of deep, not necessarily conscious unhappiness because I thought I was, I, I thought at the time, and I still do think that I was quite a happy person day to day and I had a lovely family and I had great friends around me, but there's something inside you that, that you consider to be empty and you consider to be a blank that needs to be filled in. And you struggle for a way of, of filling that and giving yourself little moments of happiness along the way and, and little, little tiny things just to distract you from that feeling and little tiny nice moments in your day that can make you feel better. And, and food is one way of doing that. And other people do it with drink. I didn't drink. Uh, I still don't really. And, and I'd never done drugs either. So people find different ways of filling these things. And mine was food. And I wasn't necessarily enjoying myself and I wasn't necessarily enjoying that lifestyle. But when it, when it symbolizes something, and you use it as a way of treating something about yourself that you're not happy with. It's not just as simple as why don't you wake up tomorrow and have a salad and go for a run. It's just something that's more ingrained in you like that. And it just takes a while to kind of break that habit. But oh yeah, all of this, all of this at the time was was stuff that Sam was probably going through as a as a nervous, overweight child, and I was going through as well. And, you know, sometimes the the stars are just aligned your way. And, uh, and sometimes you just get the breaks and that was, that was the big break. And that was the moment that I thought somebody must've been looking down on me and smiling. Your character was the nerd hero of what might be the greatest nerd television program of all time. With <laughs> all, all, uh, all apologies to like the Whovians and the audience and the, and oh, the yeah. Trekkers and so forth. <laughs> Um, but I like it the best of all. Oh, great. Um, and, uh, I wonder what as a kid and as an adolescent you were unduly passionate about, intemperately passionate about. There are two things in my life that I think are ever present really. And, and, and other things kind of come and go, but there are some things in my life that I, that, that I know my passion will never really dim for and one of them one of those things is comedy comedy is my is is my my first passion really and my first love and the thing that i turn to so often for comfort and escapism and and looking back i think that i was watching comedy when i was a very very young person that i shouldn't really have been watching like I, I remember, I remember being, I think, you know, five, six, seven years old and watching, do you know Blackadder? Sure. Yeah. We, I, I remember watching, watching Blackadder when I was five or six years old and that, that's quite an, that's an, an adult, you know, grown up comedy program historically set, but with lots of kind of bawdy humor about it and some sexual humor and, and a, a lot of cursing in it and bad language that I shouldn't have really been watching when I was five or six years old but I remember just loving it so much and just loving the way it made me feel and I think I, I think one of the first awakenings I had about being an actor or being a performer is I used to watch Blackadder and I used to watch Monty Python and Faulty Towers and and 
some of you know so some American shows as well. I used to watch. I used to love Married with Children. We used to have Married with Children on all the time, which really dates this to the kind of mid nineties. <laughs> and I used to watch it and think, I'd love to be able to make other people feel the way they're making me feel. And the other one is uh, football, soccer. Soccer is is something that I go to and experience live and watch on watch on television a lot. And I and you know, I say that I support Manchester United and people then say, oh, who's your favourite player from the 1939-40 season or, or can you name the top scorer in this season? And I, and I, I don't really think about it like that. I don't, I don't engage with football and I don't engage with sport on an intellectual kind of academic basis. It's not an academic subject. I connect with it purely emotionally. I don't know a lot about Premier League soccer or, frankly, soccer or football in general. Yeah. Are Manchester United, I know they're one of the greatest and most famous teams of uh, the Premier League. Are they good guys or bad guys? Like, if you were a Yankees fan. Yeah. I could ask you, are the Yankees good guys or bad guys? And if you were honest with me, you would know that the Yankees are bad guys. Oh, right. Okay. Well, in that case, Manchester United are definitely bad guys. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, really, they're really despised quite aggressively in England or in, in the UK or, you know, even in the football community worldwide because they had such a period of success in, in, the, in the 1990s where they were just winning everything in sight. And we had Sir Alex Ferguson, who's the greatest manager that football's ever seen. And we were just overcoming every single challenge. We were, we were making history. We were winning everything that we, that we really could win at that time. And that's not going to make people like you, I'm afraid. That's just, that's just really not going to do anything for your kind of public uh, affection being shown towards you. But just lately, we've had a little bit of a downturn and, and things aren't going our way. And there are other teams who are are rising up ahead of us and, and we're not winning things every season now. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be assuaging or, or you know, changing people's perception of us. People seem to be taking a real delight in our, in our downfall at the moment. And, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, e- that's easy to take when you're winning everything in sight because you can c- console yourself with trophies and console yourself with success. But when you're not having the success that you once had and people are still vitriolic towards you on a daily basis and the media seems to take great delight in documenting your downfall and holding you up as some kind of morality tale about you know this too shall pass and and you shouldn't get too smug because you know bad times comparatively bad times are on the way you think god this and without any trophies this really is the worst of both worlds. So yeah, no, definitely bad guys. I mean, I mean, we have a devil on our badge, and our nickname is the Red Devils. So I probably didn't need that long an answer to answer that question. <laughs> to be fair, I could have just said, "No, no, no, we're the Red Devils. We're definitely bad guys, and that's all there is to it." But I like them. I like us. Who's to say? Who's to say who's 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 a good guy and who's a bad guy? There's anti-heroes in everything. Bring us back to Game of Thrones. <laughs> I, I imagined you like doing a thing where you like snap both fingers, clap your hands together, and then do an expansive gesture when you said that brings us back to Game of Thrones. Like a, <laughs> g- gave it a big magician's finish. 
No, no, no. I just, uh, I, 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 that, that wasn't the plan at all, that link. <laughs> I just, I just stumbled across that. I'm very, very pleased with it. But no, no, to, to say that I, I constructed that answer with that in mind would just be giving myself far too much credit. I, I know that you watch the show because you've described watching the show. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a pretty good show to watch it when it comes to shows that you're on, because uh, even the biggest stars of the show are on screen 15% of the time. True, yeah. When the song is playing, do, do you ever make up words to the song inside your head? Or sing along to the song? No, I, it, it's, it's such a weird kind of Pavlovian reaction that I have to that theme now. Because... I can't listen to that music without associating it with a certain kind of nerves that I'm going to be in this show and <laughs> I'm going to be judged on my performance in this show. And at some point, I'm going to pop up in this show and do acting in it. And the world's going to see me doing acting in this show. And that always starts with the music. Like, like, like I think I just associate the music now with being in screening rooms like we did our premiere in new york this year we've done them in, in la in the past and you sit in big auditoriums and auditoria with thousands of people or hundreds of people who are going to watch this episode and when the music starts the entire audience erupts into some kind of frenzy of of excitement and every time they do that and every time they they scream and shout and they applaud when they hear the start of that music a certain dread kicks in <laughs> for me that that i think oh god i wish i was just a fan of this show like i wish i could just watch it with everybody else and cheer when it comes on and not have this sense of responsibility or this worry that i'm going to be judged literally any minute now so i i th I, th I, th I think i have a people in it have a much different reaction to that music it, it feels the vast majority of the world is filled with excitement when they hear that music but i think for us there's just a sense of oh god here we go here we go oh no what if it goes wrong what what if this is the episode that i'm just terrible in and what if this is the episode that the world never quite forgives me for we can always see that with you know slightly more loaded and slightly more uh, slightly more negatively, I guess, if you're involved in it and you're going to be held up to the judgment of, let's face it, a really quite judgmental fan base <laughs> over the course of the next hour. I go, Thrones, Thrones, Game of Thrones, Thrones, Throny Thrones. <laughs> Inside my head and occasionally like with my dog doing a little dance. Oh, that's nice. I'm going to think about Well, I, I nearly said, this is why I'm so not in the mindset of it finishing yet. I said to myself, oh, I'll think of that next time it's on. <laughs> it's not going to be here next time it's going to be on. I, w I wish we'd have done this interview eight years ago. Then every time I was nervous about it, I could think of you dancing with your dog. But now that, that little tool is never going to come in handy. Cheers for that. You, I imagine, get a script, you know, by email or courier or whatever w once every week or two during the during the time when things are filming and and also the story of game of thrones was prescribed largely by the books for at least the first five or six years of the show yeah uh, um but i wonder once that was no longer the case whether you imagined what the path and what the end point would be for for sam for your guy well, I think 
I was kind of on a similar way of thinking to a lot of the viewers in so much as you, you, after, after a while, if you've been exposed to enough film and TV, you start to know the form and structure of it and you start to recognize some of the kind of, some of the kind of flags that you see sometimes, which, which can give you clues as to how things are going to win. For example, if you get somebody who is softer than most and is, and, and is, is likable and isn't tough and kind of, and, and kind of is, is kind of some sort of emotional centerpiece to the series and has a good heart. You can be forgiven for thinking if you've watched enough film and TV in your lifetime that, oh, he's clearly going to die for emotional manipulation because you've seen it in so many films. You've seen the good guy die, you know, halfway through a film. And then that gives the hero the impetus that he needs to carry on. And he kind of fights for the memory of the good guy that's died. You've seen that so many times. You've seen that, you know, you kind of get used to that cliche over time. So a lot of people could be forgiven for thinking like I kind of was. I will some, at some point in the last two seasons, Sam's going to die. Jon Snow's going to see that. And then that's just going to kind of empower and galvanize Jon Snow to go forward and exact his revenge for the death of Sam or something. And I think that to give Sam a happy ending and to, and to make Sam be one of the very few people that actually survives over the course of these entire eight seasons, sometimes completely against all odds, and sometimes coming back from situations that you just can't imagine him ever surviving. If you take you know, the Battle of Winterfell, where he's just been besieged by White Walkers and he sometimes has to try and fight them off, somehow has to try and fight them off. That isn't that isn't a situation that you'd expect Samuel Tarly to survive. And I think in shows that are kind of much more prescribed and much less bold and much less brave and relying more heavily on cliche you know sam would have died in those moments but the fact that he's defied the odds and david and dan and the writers that we have they've defied audience expectations by keeping him alive and keeping him alive not not just keeping him alive to the very end but giving him a happy ending where suddenly his opinion and his unique set of skills and the attributes that he brings to the table suddenly they're valued and they're prized and he sits around that table with Tyrion and everybody else at the end because he's got something to offer and it's not that he's he's subscribed suddenly to some kind of toxic masculinity precedent it's not that he's suddenly stopped being nerdy and bookish and he's learned how to swing a sword around and he's become a great fighter that would be a redemption story in, I think, a much kind of cheaper narrative landscape, really, that he suddenly becomes a great fighter. He finds that warrior within himself, and he fulfills a lot of those... He kind of fulfills a lot of those patriarchal stereotypes that, that nobody thought he was capable of. That, that would have been one way to look at it. But what you get with Sam is, at the end of the show... He's valued because of the qualities that he had in him all along. Suddenly, the world's caught up with him. More with John Bradley when we come back from a quick break. In just a bit, Bullseye fans on Twitter also have questions for him, and I promise they are nice questions. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Prepare yourself for the greatest pro wrestling podcast spectacular known as Tights and Fights. A fact-dropping audio showcase that helps you understand the world of pro wrestling with a lot of love and no toxic masculinity. Featuring hosts 
Daniel Radford. Time to kick butt and chew gum, and I'm all out of butts. Lindsay Cow. I'm a brutal Brit, and my fists were made to punch and hit. And Hal Lublin. I was doing the voiceover this whole time. Hear us talk about pro wrestling's greatest triumphs and failures. And make fun of its weekly absurdities. On the Perfect Wrestling Podcast. Tights and fights. Every Saturday, Saturday, Saturday on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Bradley of Game of Thrones and the new movie Moonfall. Before we go, there are two questions that came up on Twitter that I, I feel I should ask you. Um, okay. The first is, do you even know how hot you are? In terms of attractiveness, do you mean? I th- uh, Well, it's not my question, but I think they mean attractiveness, yeah. Uh, okay, let's just take it that they mean attractiveness, right? There's no answer I can give here that's going to make me sound good. Because, <laughs> because, because, okay, okay, okay. Ask me the question twice. Ask me the question twice. Deal. Come on. Do you even know how hot you are? Yes, I know how hot I am. Okay, go again. Do you even know how hot you are? No, I don't even know how hot I am. I'll tell you what my trouble is. I don't even know how hot I am. <laughs> See what I mean? Neither of those answers are any good. Neither, uh... Unless I had a caveat, which is, do you know how hot you are? Yes, I do know how hot I am. Not very. That's the only way I can try and get out of it. So I'm going to say thank you very much for your compliment, whoever you are. But um, uh, no, see, I, I just don't know how to answer. Just thank you very much for your compliment, I imagine. Uh, but but I'm, I'm going to back out of it at this stage. This one might have a more concrete answer. Okay. What does Kit Harrington smell like? It depends at what point you catch him, really. I mean, I, 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 I think I've been with Kit at many stages of his own tiredness and his own fatigue and his own, uh, you know, his own sense of progression through a day. If you catch him at the right moment, you've never smelled anything as nice in your life. Catch him at the wrong moment, and believe me, you won't be smelling much else for quite a while after. I, I, I think, I think people, that, that's an interesting point, actually, about people think, oh, you know, Game of Thrones, it must be such a kind of glamorous uh, shoot and you must have such a fun time on it the fact of the matter is that we're up to our knees in mud a lot of the time in the rain in belfast wearing leather costumes that we've worn for 10 years we just stink we stink so much we we absorb all sorts of smells into that costume there's always fires burning there's always horses who are always dropping their load all over the place i think i've smelt as bad on game of thrones as I've ever smelt in my life and hope to smell for the rest of my life. So what does Kit Harrington smell like? The thing is, I don't know if he's got any, I should know this. He, he's such a good friend of mine. I don't know if he's got any kind of aftershave endorsements going at the moment. I wish I knew. <laughs> because then I could say that. I, I, I don't want to say he smells like a certain aftershave that he's contractually forbidden from wearing. So I'm going to say, I'm going to play it safe, nice down the line. I'm going to say good a lot of the time really not good some of the time. Well, John, I am so grateful that you took all this time uh, to be on Bullseye and talk with me. It was it was really nice to get to talk to you. And, and again, yeah. congratulations on this remarkable achievement. Oh, thank you so much. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. John Bradley. His new movie, Moonfall, is in theaters now. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, we've just been watching this English antiquing reality show called Antiques Road Trip all the time. I'm really into it. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and thanks to Memphis Industries Records for letting us use that. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all those places. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 